Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond, and I have some guests today, Scott Hagley, Karen Rohr, and Michael Gerling, editors of the book Sustaining Grace, Innovative Ecosystems for New Faith Communities. The book Sustaining Grace explores the dynamic between new faith communities and denominational systems through the lens of stewardship and sustainability. As a collection, these essays suggest that to facilitate ecologies for innovation in our current era, established congregations and new faith communities must model the sustaining grace of God to one another in creative ways. Thus, problems of sustainability are not for church planners to solve alone, but rather are related to the theologies of stewardship and the ecclesial systems to which they belong. Issues of vision are not for denominational systems to theorize alone, but are given shape on the historic foundations and the creative and prophetic structures practiced in new faith communities. So we'll talk a little bit about this book and what's the content about it a little bit in our conversation today. But first, let me tell you just real quick about Scott is the Associate Professor of Missiology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's the author of Eat What is Set Before You, A Missiology of the Congregation in Context. Karen Rohr is the Director of the Church Planting Initiative at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Before coming to Pittsburgh, she was an organizing co-pastor at Beacon, a new faith community in Philadelphia. And Michael Gerling serves at the Presbyterian Church USA as an associate for the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Initiative. Before coming to this role, he was an organizing co-pastor of the Upper Room, a new faith community in Pittsburgh. Scott, Karen, and Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, Karen has actually been here before. Karen, you're actually my first repeat guest. So I don't know if congratulations is in order or I'm sorry. Like, I feel honored. I will take it. <laughs> I'll leave that for you to make that decision. But uh, Michael and Scott, uh, welcome. Uh, Karen has already given kind of her backstory on a previous episode. I think that was in, was it season four or five? I'll have to look back and put it in the show notes. Uh, so if you haven't listened to uh, Karen had a great interview herself. Go back and listen to that after you listen to this episode. Uh, but Michael and Scott, um, what else would you like our listeners to know about you? Yeah, well, uh, it's good to be with you, Lauren. Uh, my name is Michael Gerling, and I currently work for the Presbyterian Church USA in the national offices as one of our associates for the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement, which is the PCUSA's church planting program. And so I get to normally in a non-COVID world, travel the country uh, and talk to folks who are doing some entrepreneurial and innovative work in forming new communities. Uh, these days, it's a lot of time spent on Zoom and that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Scott, how about you? Um, I'm a professor of missiology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Um, I work really closely with Karen Rohr in our Center for Adaptive and Innovative Ministry. Um, and also uh, work with a doctor of ministry program in missional leadership um, at the seminary. Uh, before coming to Pittsburgh, I was a pastor of a, um, of a, 
Church of Missional Communities in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and uh, so very interested in understanding uh, the nature and shape of uh, forming new communities and, and adaptive ministries in um, the current context we find ourselves in. Awesome. Scott, I might have to ask you afterwards, like how one becomes a professor of missiology, because uh, I, I find that whole realm so fascinating, but we don't have time to get into that. Um, well, maybe we will. We'll see. Um, Michael and Scott, if you, again, wanted to share a little bit about kind of your faith journey, and uh, Michael, go ahead again. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a product of the Presbyterian Church since childhood. Uh, what I would say is I grew up in a church that, at the time at least, was described to me by others as a country club church, which was interesting because we were not a country club family. I was uh, the son of an auto mechanic, and um, my mother owned a small retail business, and so we we were not country club material at all, but we, we went to a country club church where being a Christian really meant being nice, uh, saying nice things, not offending anybody. And I went from that to uh, going to an evangelical college where being a Christian meant something very, very different. And uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, uh, since then, my journey has been one of uh, kind of detoxing from all of that a little bit. And uh, I think uh, the, the biggest growing edge for me in my, my faith journey has been uh, learning to love the communion of the saints and to realize that being a follower of Jesus means being a part of this broad community that spans time and space and that I have access to wisdom and, uh, and a vision of faithfulness and a vision of the kingdom of God uh, through communion with others. That's so interesting how you describe that being a part of the communion of saints. Love it. Uh, Michael, uh, yeah, share your story if you don't mind. I'll turn it over to Scott to share his story. Um, so Lauren, I don't know how someone, um, becomes a missiologist. It's something my kids, um, still, I have two adolescent girls. They still mercilessly mock me about my <laughs> life choices that led to this place. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to own it and live into it. Um, so my background's in evangelicalism also, but kind of in a roundabout way. I, I, my family was Catholic growing up, went to Catholic school. Um, my mom had a very... Um, kind of uh, had a conversion experience, um, and uh, we were so we were a part of a, a, a kind of almost charismatic group that was in our Catholic parish. Long story, that group ended up kind of disbanding. We ended up in a Protestant church, and um, that was you know on the fundamentalist end of, of evangelicalism. Um, went to evangelical college, you know, university, um, studied theology. Um, wanted to be a pastor, and and I, I think that my my um, um, my journey um, as a as a pastor, particularly on the West Coast, um, was recognizing that that um, a, a lot of the forms of the faith I had been shaped you know shaped by and 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 um, invited into um, had all kinds of. Um, uh, all, all kinds of, uh, it, there was all kinds of baggage, you know, that, that came with it, that, um, through my twenties, I started sort of working through, you know, the colonial, the colonial, um, um, kind of assumptions of, of evangelism and mission and things like that. 
um, the, um, the, the white supremacist kind of underpinnings of, of a lot of our sort of social and um, um, kind of organization of our congregations and our denominations, um, our lack of ability to critique capitalism. I mean, all these things. Uh, so, so, so there was a lot of kind of disentangling that happened for me in my 20s. And that's sort of the roundabout way I ended up studying mission and staying in school and getting more degrees. Um, so I'm a, an elder at a Presbyterian church here in Pittsburgh. Um, uh, some of my connections to some evangelical communities became a little bit harder to maintain over the years, um, but, but still consider myself very formed by that tradition. I'm very interested in those intersection points between mainline and evangelical uh, churches and, and expressions of the faith. So, Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, a spiritual practice or uh, you all might recommend others or it's been meaningful to you? Yeah, the one I would share is spiritual friendship. And I actually talk about this in the chapter of the book that the three of us edited together, uh, Sustaining Grace, which we'll talk about more in a moment here. Yeah. But uh, my best friend, uh, Chris, and I, uh, when he was living in Pittsburgh and we were actually starting and leading a new church together, part of our rhythm was to uh, have about a two-hour conversation once a week. Uh, he has since moved away from Pittsburgh, and we have that conversation on the phone about once a month now. And uh, we frame that conversation around uh, six big questions that starts with what is the state of your heart uh, and eventually moves to praying with one another. And I think uh, having a friendship that is intentional, uh, that is in some ways uh, a mutual expression of spiritual direction uh, yeah. is, is really important. It, it, it's provided me with opportunities of receiving God's grace in tangible ways by hearing someone else uh, say good news to me, to say to yeah. me that I'm forgiven, uh, to say to me that I'm restored, and also to give me some honest feedback from time to time. I've heard uh, my friends say to me, I've never seen you more alive than I have right now. And I've heard him say to me, hmm. uh, this isn't good for you. And yeah. so to get that kind of feedback, I think is really important also. Scott, I'm curious if... You grew up, if you said, kind of in fundamentalist evangelical uh, circles. I certainly didn't. It reminds me of accountability partners uh, growing up. Well, you said Michael, and I'm hoping it's a more healthier version of that. But I really think that there's a benefit of that, like you said. Uh, Scott, how about for you? Um, so I, I want to maybe point to two that have been really have really shaped my, um, the last year when we've all been working from home and unable to travel and things like that. Um, one, one isn't going to sound like much of a spiritual practice, but it's just, um, it, it's getting into regular rhythms of either walking, running, biking, like self-propelled movement by yourself through your neighborhood, you know, when you, we couldn't go other places. And I, I just realized that those, those became, I've always struggled with like centering prayer exercises because my mind just it, it gets on these rabbit trails. I've actually found more, more, po more. Uh, it's more possible for me to be centered, you know, in these kinds of practices, these kinds of daily rhythms. And so, because I haven't been traveling much at all in the last year, uh, I feel like I've been able to get into some really some healthier sort of ways of dwelling in my neighborhood. And and I've realized that that's these have become prayerful. Um, so I discovered something about how this practice shapes my own life. It can actually take root in my own life. 
Um, the second is a practice of simplicity. Um, I'm teaching a class on capitalism this, um, this fall. And um, it's caused me and my wife to think through, as par particularly our financial decisions and how we live and realizing how many times you have a choice between simplicity or complexity and you're constantly pressed by the, the, um, the desires of consumer capitalism to move towards complexity. And um, there's, there's a kind of freedom in, in, in this move towards simplicity. So it's caused us to think about some different financial decisions, some practices in our lives, how we hold on to things, how we think about possessions. Um, and that's been really freeing. And so that's a, a new thing I've been kind of um, learning um, in the last couple of months. Yeah, it's so interesting because I've, I've really gotten into riding, bike riding, and boy, there's an endless rabbit trail of things you can get. All helpful, but that complexity, like you said. Um, Karen, I don't want to leave you out of this conversation completely. Anything you want to chime in um, on spiritual practices since you've last been on? Sure. I mean, um, I think when I was last on, I talked about spiritual direction, which has been life-changing for me. Um, but I, I recently started um, group spiritual direction as well. And so like intentionally walking with a small group of people um, and, and it's different, but there's a similarity there. Anytime and I, I'm resonating with what Michael talked about in terms of spiritual friendship, anytime you're with a group of people and you can name God's movement in the world and God's movement in our shared lives, it's, it's pretty powerful. And it, it, you know, I try not to think too hard about how infrequently we take the chance to do that in the church, because that seems to be what we're here to do. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing everyone. Let's, uh, as Michael alluded to, uh, Michael, Karen, and Scott, trying to get everybody's names right, <laughs> recently co-edited the book Sustaining Grace, Innovative Ecosystems for New Faith Communities. And when did this come out? 2020? Yeah, it came out right in the height of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I was fortunate to get a copy of it and really enjoyed uh, going through it. And I wanted to dive in kind of to talking about some of these themes, but first kind of share kind of about like how the book came to be. Sure. Um, I mean, this was a process that Scott and Michael and I kind of worked on together. And I want to say on the front end, we were really, really lucky to have the support of 1001 New Worshiping Communities because it enabled this to be a holistic process and not like an endless email chain. Um, so the book really came out of a group of people from all across the church, pastors, academics, judicatory leaders, national staff people, um, local pastors of inherited churches, local planters, artists, farmer, um, all kinds of folks. And the goal was to gather people together to have an honest and productive conversation about sustainability in new faith communities. It's not, it's not working and we don't feel heard. How can we communicate across that divide? Boy, I want to put a pin on that. It's not working and we don't feel heard. <laughs> and by we, I mean everybody, right? Like the, the, the judicatory leaders, the academics, the new church planners, the um, inherited church leaders, nobody feels heard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, well, let's dive in. I want to kind of work through, walk through some quotes uh, that I read in the book that really stuck out to me. And I don't, I don't know if you all want to kind of take turns at, or, you know, responding to these, but the one line, uh, again, sustaining grace comes from a mainline perspective, as I understand it, in the Presbyterian Church USA or the PCUSA. 
But in the book, it, it's written that the mainline church needs pioneering and pioneering leaders to, or excuse me, let me go again. The mainline church needs pioneering and pioneering, I can't talk, pioneering leaders need the mainline church system. So basically the point is y'all need, we all need one another. Um, kind of talk more about that. Uh, I think, I, I think most i'll say this like most pioneering leaders might be like whoa i don't want those kind of ancient archaic systems those traditional systems and again mainline systems mainline traditions mainline denominations might may be like we're afraid of new things that new and creative and different yeah and that that tension is exactly the tension that um, characterized our conversation. So when we, you know, we gathered a, the, the, a group of leaders that represented different parts of the institution, um, academics, um, yeah, as, as Karen said, academics and judicatory leaders and pastors and church planters and some you know, kind of a few people in between as well. I'm working with nonprofits or whatnot. And, um, you know, at, around the table, there was a, a sense there was trust in the people that were there, but there was mutual distrust of the different parts of the conversation each person represented. Um, and so, you know, so that was something we we sort of embodied in the actual conceptual conceptualization of the book and, and in the conversation. Um, and and it's one of the reasons why we sort we landed on this metaphor of of ecosystem. You know that any question of sustainability should not be a question that's decided by the kind of isolated congregate congregation or isolated um, church planter per se, or, or new church leader or whatever, but rather to recognize um, the, the breadth of gift, gifts in the church. Um, and the fact that in this kind of unprecedented sort of time that we're living in, you know, this new missional era or post Christendom or whatever, or postmodern or whatever our sort of, word of the day is to describe the kind of turmoil that we're feeling about how Christianity relates to the broader society. Um, we need all the gifts at the table. Um, and that's true about sustainability. I think it's also true about innovation. Um, and, and we are too quick to sort of cut off these connections. Now, I think the suspicion you have is absolutely right. Mainline church systems, particularly moneyed ones, think they, because they have money, they assume then that they know what's best. And there's all kinds of ways that that can go south. Um, innovative um, kind of people that are doing things at the edges um, often have a, a, a well-earned um, suspicion of these systems and, and um, can sometimes step on toes. And so I think that you know, we, we don't want to be overly idealistic, but, but that... Um, you know, but but we want to recognize that that any way forward has to sort of recognize the full gifts of the of the church. I feel like this is an important point, Michael and and Karen. You want to chime in here with anything? Yeah, I one of the the phrases that a mentor of mine uh, would often said about church planting is that church planters in the church ecosystem function as the research and development arm of the church. And I've seen that play out. It's absolutely true. The whole church needs innovators. It played out during the pandemic, at least in our, in our denomination, when all of a sudden all of our churches needed to move to some kind of digital expression of a church gathering. We had already several of our new worshiping communities in the PCUSA who had already experimented with that and done that and were ready to teach the rest of the church how to do it well. And so uh, that, that was the most 
recent example and most vivid example I've seen. Um, but I've also seen our new worshiping communities need uh, the the hard-earned wisdom of churches that have sustained and been around for a long time. Um, in, in the church I led uh, and started, uh, it was a church of mostly younger folks who were figuring out what their Christianity was going to look like. Uh, as folks who grew up in maybe less healthy expressions of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember several of them who were in their, their thirties saying, you know, I don't want to be the matriarch or the patriarch of this church. You know, uh, I want my, my child to have, gr- uh, grandparent figures in, uh, the faith community they're a part of. And so for us, that meant having partnerships with established churches around us who were excited to invest in us and invest in, the younger adults there and to provide mentoring relationships. And so we saw that play out too, uh, that we needed, uh, we needed the established church, not just uh, for financial resources, but uh, for everything and all the parts of who they are. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, I think if I've read this and I'm, I imagine you all have too, that millennials and younger generations tend to appreciate, you know, the the elder generations among us and, and look to them as uh, folks that we can learn from and, and, and grow with yet uh, it can be hard to to foster those relationships in church can't it especially when one community or one faith community is very cutting edge and new I, I think that's a really good point and I'm thinking back to the room where you know the this book started as a conversation and people brought their own essays to share with the group and we kind of talked through them and even argued about them and the thing that made it work was that people across the table, were invested in deep life shared kind of ways with other people at the table, despite their being in a totally different position in the ecosystem. And I think what sometimes happens in church is we, we keep not hearing each other. And so we sort of say like, you know, I love and care about this person, but I'm not present in this relationship anyway, because I don't feel heard. I don't feel like I can, like there's even space for me to be here. So I got to go. And the church ends up like a seesaw unbalanced. And, you know, one side is present. One side has totally left. Um, And if we don't have that uh, affection and care to keep us together, then we lose the productive tension and our sort of continuum from innovative to traditional gets really shrunk down and truncated uh, and skewed as a result. And so and one of the things that's really needed is is the mutual affection that allows us to hear each other. Well, wow, that's such a hard dynamic to balance, but so important. Um, I'm curious, this was another line that was in the book that really stood out to me. That it's It's written, the problems of sustainability are not for church planters to solve alone. And I just want to say, like, first of all, thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Uh, now, why? Because I think it's generally thought like, hey, church planner, figure it out. Well, I think for starters, I think the the expectations that we place on new worshiping communities for self-sustainability aren't sustainable expectations. Uh, I, we, we have uh, new worshiping communities in our movement that are flourishing, growing, uh, contextually appropriate. Uh, expressions of church for the the time and the place where they're functioning and the the group of people that they are uh, gathering and convening. Uh, And uh, their judicatories won't charter them. Uh, And sometimes that's because they have these metrics of 
in, in one case, uh, there's a judicatory who's saying we need 75 people who are ready to sign on to the Book of Confessions of the Presbyterian Church <laughs> in order for yeah. us to consider this a, a real a real Presbyterian church. Yeah. And um, we're at, we've asked them the question, you know, how many of your established churches can even meet that mark? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is a lot of them can't. And so uh, there's some, a lot of wrong expectations or, or unreasonable expectations we place on our, uh, on our new worshiping community. Yeah, because I'm a church nerd, recently I put together like a little like uh, spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheet just kind of crunching financial numbers and some data I found said the average adult gives $17 a week. So a budget of 120 K, which is very minimal for a church you'd need, I think the number was 137 or 136 adults every week uh, to make that work. That And that's not even obviously including children. Um, so if you're going to have probably 40, 50 kids, you're going to need a, probably a bigger budget than 120, and the numbers just kind of get really complicated. I, I really want to ask if um, being self-sustainable or uh, uh, totally independent from need, uh, whether it be financial or collaborative or whatever, from other faith communities is uh, even something that we should be aspiring to. Like, I have, I have real questions about ch- churches who... Like the, the goal is to not need anybody. Oh, who is that? Like, is that a gospel goal we're striving to? Um, and, and we, we sort of say like, well, no, but I mean, how is it going to exist? And I think there needs to be more imagination there because um, we have to believe that being faithful can exist. Hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think self-sustaining as a, as a goal for like, you know, a, a, congr- a plant becomes a congregation when it's self-sustaining it, um, it is actually um, it undermines innovation rather than um, op- opens it up. So, you know, the, what you're describing, the average adult gives $17 a week and a budget of 120,000. You know, we've all, we have all these assumptions about what constitutes a congregation that are based on patterns of giving and living and volunteering that, you know, we're really formed hundreds of years ago in the United States, and we're not, you know, um, levels of volunteerism in the United States are different than they used to be. And we can complain about that, or we can just acknowledge that people are, are choosing to live their lives differently than they did 50 or 60 years ago. Um, disposable income, people have, you know, there there's, we're seeing the hollowing out of the middle class, and, and um, um, that's going to have impact for giving and things like that. And so, um you know, if we tell people, unless you have X amount of people that can give X amount of money so that we don't have to keep funding you, um, you know, that, that actually gets in the way of thinking about different, it could get in the way of thinking about different ways of, of forming, you know, communities. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, I think if we think of this as a problem partially of, of, of innovating or discerning and discovering kind of new ways of forming Christian community, that are attentive to these new dynamics. We, I think we need to be willing to um, invest some some money in it and not and not assume at the outset what the outcome should be. You know, and I think that's a little bit of what we're what we were trying to get at with the book. Yeah, and I'll say like from my experience, I think that's super helpful because when 
the financial metric is the leading metric that you're going by. It, it really shapes most, if not all, your decisions because it has to. Like it's just like if the money doesn't work, this isn't this isn't going to matter. Like it's not going to exist. Literally, in some cases. Yeah, and and I also I want to name here that what that often means is that people in a planting role will say, I'm going to, I'm going to be underpaid because this matters. This is what I'm called to do. This is what matters to me. And individually, you know, people make those choices systemically. We are burning out our innovators. We are like, we are wringing people out and disposing of them, um, which is not what we believe about stewardship generally. And that's part of why the ecosystem metaphor is so important because like, if I keep stamping out one kind of plant in an ecosystem, it has ramifications all over the ecosystem. Um, and I think that's true in in the planting world as well. Karen, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that really stood out to me. I think because you wrote about this, I think, in your in your chapter. Um, this is one of the things that I've really wrestled with in kind of faith-based innovation is I feel like I mean, I don't think it's just faith-based, but I think so often it's really the expectation is that the the planter or innovator has to bear so much of the cost. And I I don't think that's fair. I just don't. Well, and it's it's dangerous, right? Like there's the question of faithfulness and stewardship of people. Um, and I do think that particularly people who came of age during the 2008 crash that's me. Um, and then witnessed the COVID experience, you know, having not built up any um, safety net and then witnessed the COVID thing. Uh, can't look at a church that treats people like this economically and think, oh, this is the kind of life I want to live. I mean, I see people in that generation doing mutual aid through their for-profit businesses, you know, organizing things online to make sure that um, wait staff from restaurants aren't totally without anything during a pandemic. Um, and then they look at the church and they're like, well, that's a really nice building you have and a nicely manicured lawn. And, and how does that play out and how you treat your people? Well, this, I mean, to me, this is something I think that I, I wonder a lot about just because of the, the, the challenges of the, you know, the economy, like you spoke of, uh, Karen, the realities of the cost of higher education. Um, you know, I think we could, we could all agree that there's there's a justice aspect to it of of people of color tending to be the ones who are most often asked to be underpaid or, or bivocational, whatever. Um, it's a huge issue for sure that needs a lot of work. Um, this is interesting. It kind of goes back to a theme we talked about earlier, but um, it's you you all write in the book that we often fail to recognize how much our judicatories are for our, for our non-denominational people among us, kind of our regional assemblies or networks of churches, how much these judicatories need church planters, whether or not their projects ever become self-sustaining. So we've kind of talked around this issue, but I mean, why, why again, uh, why from like a purely economic model, we might think like, Hey, this is just, this is just a drain on money, on resources, on finances. Like, why should we allow this to continue? Yeah. Well, I think we, again, uh, we need people who are going to be innovators in our systems. Uh, we also, we, we need communities that are going to, uh, keep, uh, the mission of God at the front uh, and I think uh, church plants are well-equipped to do that. I think church plants also play a prophetic role in our ecosystem of really 
challenging, you know, what is our ecclesiology and what is the essence of, of being church? Um, I remember in the church I grew up in, one of the Sunday school lessons one day was, you know, the church isn't really the building, the church is the people. Uh, and then, you know, decades later, fast forward, and I'm planting a church and members of that church who, you know, taught those Sunday school lessons to me are asking me, well, when are you going to get your building? <laughs> and so I think uh, church plants challenge the the assumed ecclesiology uh, that we have and, and really call us back to what what, what is essential. Um, and then I also think that, you know, that that blesses the established church when we put the mission of God in front as a church plant. Yeah. Um, I remember there were folks yeah. uh, who visited uh, the church I had started, uh, and they had lived in the neighborhood for a while and, and came to us because we were this new thing that popped up and it sparked their curiosity. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't for them, but it started them on a spiritual journey, and they ended up at the established church a few blocks away from us that they had been walking past you know, for as long as they had lived there, and it was just kind of part of the scenery for them. Um, and, and so I think... You know, there, there's a, a role for church plants to play practically of just sparking curiosity in the neighborhood and, yeah. um, and the established church benefits from that as well. Yeah. I think too, most of our churches are structured around the assumption that, um, you know, that they are there for their neighbors and their neighborhood. And um, whenever they wake up on some Sunday morning and say, you know what? Um, my life's a mess. Maybe I should go to church today that they'll know where to go and what to do. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you're going to plant a church, you're going to start a new faith community. And if your assumption is we're just going to like do a great thing and open our doors and like people are going to just, you know, if you build it, they will come. People are just going to come in because I'm so cool and we're doing such a cool thing. You know, that that does work, I think, when you do like the multi-site church planning and you bring an army of people into a neighborhood. But that's not really what we mean when we talk about new faith, you know, new church development. Um, and, and so the kind of work, the kind of practices that are necessary to create new faith communities in new places um, are habits and practices that a lot of our established churches have forgotten how to do or they are afraid to do. Um, often if you go back in the annals of the church far enough, there might, and, and might even still be people alive that can remember doing that kind of work in an earlier era. Right. But, you know, once you have an endowment or you have a full staff that can do either their, your ministry for you, um, or you have a very comfortable worship gathering of six, 60 people on a Sunday morning and you don't need more to, you know, that kind of like it becomes really easy to sort of lose that sense of a community that is being hosted by a neighborhood and is also hospitable to a neighborhood that is, di di you know, di um, discerning, actively discerning um, the shape of faithful ministry in a changing context. Um, and so I think when, when church planters are doing this kind of work in a system and they're allowed to share their stories and they're allowed to be teachers and not just beneficiaries of the largesse of the system, I think everybody benefits. Michael, Karen, any, any other thoughts there? The only thing I would add, I think, is that one of the things that trips up this conversation is power dynamics, like exactly what Scott said, is allowed to be a teacher and not just a beneficiary. Um, there's some muscle memory in, and this is my heritage, right? I was raised in a Presbyterian church, uh, traditional faith community. Um, 
but we really like as church people to be the one who uh, is generous and gives away and hosts. Um, And that becomes a power dynamic really, really fast if we don't think of other people, both innovators within our system and individuals who are not affiliated with church as part of our uh, collaborative ecosystem and not just someone who could receive something from us. Um, We really have to be mindful of that power dynamic because we perpetuate it without even thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I keep coming back to my mind. I, was it Michael or Scott? I can't remember which one. He said this: the idea about R, new churches R uh, and D. And I was recently reading about how new, or in the last few years, like businesses are just basically shoveling all their cash to their stockholders rather than reinvesting it in their businesses. And uh, you know, we might say from a from a business perspective, like obviously a new business or a business isn't expecting to turn a profit on every thing, every new R and D project. Obviously if it's just constantly hitting and constant swing and misses, they want to reevaluate, but they look at, they look at, I, I think, you know, there has to be some measure of risk in order to, to advance the greater good or to see what the next thing is going to be. So I, I appreciate the kind of the, the attitude of R and D, uh, I also in, in I think Scott, you said this. I think this is important to to talk about too. Like, what do we mean when we need, mean? What do we mean when we say new church? Because uh, it can mean anything from like what you said, Scott. Kind of like the what happens around my neck of the woods in the Denver metro, where folks come in with this with this launching of like eighty people from the south, you know, or it's it's somebody you know parachuting into a neighborhood or whatever it can mean different things um so one thing i did want to ask though what do we think like i've been kind of thinking about this lately um i'd imagine that we're all kind of against kind of the quote-unquote numbers goal as being the sole metric whether that be attendance finances or whatever what should uh, I'm trying to trying to literally like write a write a paper on this right now. So maybe I might use your answers in my paper. But what should like the what should the metrics be for whether it be the 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 church planner or the innovator or the community itself? Yeah, you know, I think those metrics can shift depending on the particular juncture that a, a new new church is at. Uh, but I remember uh, one particular. Uh, church planter of ours who happened to be a student of Scott's. So uh, some credit to Scott on this, we'll say. Uh, But uh, this particular planter was leading a workshop with me for one of our adjudicatories, uh, not, not too far from Pittsburgh. And uh, she was asked about, you know, well, if, if you're not going to be, you know, counting your offering numbers and your worship attendance, what are you going to count? And she really uh, had some brilliant answers. She talked about, uh, she counts how many cups of coffee she has with people in her neighborhood. Uh, yeah. She counts how many invitations she receives into homes uh, of, yeah. of neighbors. And so I think there are numbers that we can count that indicate the level of trust we've built in our communities yeah. and the people that we're uh, seeking to engage and uh, and the level of um, embeddedness that we have uh, in uh, the, the community or the neighborhood that we're getting started in. That's good. And I and I that's really good, Michael. I I like that idea. I was a, wasn't sure where this was going to go, um, but uh, the uh, I also wonder if it, we need to co- go back and um, like 
have a metric for the metric in, in a sense, you know, like what purpose are metrics serving? And, and I think we often use metrics in a kind of lazy sense to say, am I successful? Am I not successful? Right. And, and I think if in any ministry endeavor, you know, success or non-success is not, um, is not an objective kind of thing, right? It has to do, it has to do, I don't want to say it's not at all objective, but it, it has to do with one's own sense of calling and one's own sense of, of um, connection with God and, um, and uh, you know, the, the, the story that's sort of being, being woven. And, some, you know, oftentimes we don't know if the work we're doing is a success or not. And maybe that's even the wrong binary to be working on, you know, like faithfulness, you know, things like that. And I, I think, you know, and so if we, if we think of metrics as ways of helping us um, put, like operationalize our values or, our, or the things that we feel called to, I think they can become much healthier. So, you know, like the number counting cups of coffee is a way for the student to say, what I feel called to do is to be present in a neighborhood and be building relational bridges. And this is, if I'm not having cups of coffee, I know I'm not, uh, I'm not aligning with this thing I'm called to. Um, you know, I think when I work sometimes with the congregations going through change processes, I'll try to get them to tell failure stories. Um, and so a metric could be, do we have enough failures to, to, to um, show that we are actually risking new things? Um, and to name it as a failure means we've actually had to then reflect on it, right? So are we risking new things and reflecting and just getting into that habit, I think, can, can get congregations unstuck. Um, and, and, again, it's a metric that can help congregations say, well, we're not, the question isn't, did anybody come or is the ministry growing? The question is, did we try something and did we learn something? Um, and, I, and I think, you know, so I, I like Michael's, Michael's framing that, like, Metrics can be different for different times, different places, and even in the same community, different when we're when we feel like we're discerning our vocation in new ways. Karen, yeah, I mean, definitely all of that. I'm thinking about uh, the marks or the moments where I felt like I was in a community that was practicing faithfulness in some way, and it makes me think of uh, Simone Weil, who's a, a very severe thinker, and I recommend her to you. Um, if you have time to like sit down and process and take a nap afterwards. Um, <laughs> sh she's great. Um, but one of the things she talks about is that an attitude of prayer is cultivated by doing things that are difficult, that one is not good at so that when God comes upon you, you have the power of attention to be present in that moment. Um, and for me, the places I've been where I've thought, Oh, this community is practicing faithfulness. It is when, hard work after hard work has discouraged us. And then something holy kind of breaks through and happens. Um, and you can feel it kind of buzzing in the air. There's it's very hard to quantify and hard to prepare for because the way you prepare for it is experiencing what so often feels like failure. I, I mean, I like what Scott said about how many times we failed because that is, I do think that's part of the training for being ready for a holy moment when it shows up because holy moments don't often show up without some kind of tension. Hmm. That's good. This is good stuff, y'all. Let me ask this. I know we're kind of running on time. Let me ask this question real quick. Um, I'm thinking about what Scott said about risk taking, Karen, what you just added there, and about how like you need to try things to risk and fail. I think what can happen, especially in established churches, is there's 
when established churches, even a new church that's struggling financially, things get so tight, um, finances are so tight that there's this real risk aversion because like we can't afford to fail, if that makes sense. And I know, I mean, I've experienced this myself, even in established churches in a new church context. So I, I guess what would be the question, like what would be your response to that? And maybe like my thought is like, what do we need to think about as far as resourcing, financial resourcing, so that there's not this kind of like, you know, pressure to to hit a home run every time. I know that in uh, the community I led and in other uh, conversations I've had in uh, the work I'm doing now, uh, the language of experimentation, um, and uh, particularly in the uh, church that I started, where we had a lot of scientists at the universities mm-hmm. nearby, uh, using laboratory language was really hmm. helpful uh, because they understood that experiments in the laboratory don't always go as planned, but just because they don't go as planned doesn't mean there isn't something valuable to glean from it. Yeah. And so I think uh, uh, claiming that language of experimentation of, um, of, of the church as a laboratory uh, for experimentation and then, and really taking that seriously then, and not just, trying things and moving on if they don't work, but actually taking a step back and doing the debrief and asking, you know, what happened here? What do we give thanks for? Uh, Where did we see God's movement? And uh, what didn't go as planned or as expected and and why? And what do we take from that moving forward? And I think uh, if if we can claim that there's success if we learn something uh, and not just if it goes as planned, I think there's a lot to gain from that. Hmm. Scott, Karen, anything there? I'm thinking about um risk at, when risk is beneficial and when risk is toxic. Oh. And mutual risk is almost always beneficial. Like the teams that I've been on where everybody was putting it all on the line and was exhausted at the end of the day were some of the most grace-filled, lovely, trust-building yeah. teams. We knew we knew we had each other's back because the stakes were too high. Um, and, and you were already grateful that this person was in this particular, you know, firefight with you. Um, and then risk that happens alone, like we well-established church are totally fine. You plant that we are supporting sort of are going to die. We're not troubled. You're troubled. That is like a breeding ground for resentment and pain on behalf of the leader, but also on behalf of the people in the new faith community who are often vulnerable along other axes that the, that the established community isn't. And so I, I guess I'm thinking about how we, how we meter out risks so that we're in it together. Um, how we make that happen. I mean, I'm thinking of a student of ours who graduated, who's been with this community for five years now, six years maybe, um, and is having a community-wide conversation about whether or not he should be paid as their pastor anymore. And the only way that works is that they've shared life and finances and homes and deep, uh, intense things together over years. And they know that nothing's going to happen to their community, whatever they decide here. And he knows that they're going to care for him no matter what happens to the community. Um, and it's, so it's it's a powerful thing to watch. Interesting. Scott? I think, too, um, we need to recognize um, how much our current systems are set up to um, – uh, to mitigate against the possibility that God might not do the thing that we want God to do, you know? Um, so 
so I think the part of what the risk, I think how the risk conversation can change and go from scary to good, um, from possibly toxic to life-giving is to reframe risk in the language of faith and um, in the recognition of God's preemptive, um, you know, grace. And, um, and so the fact that uh, God's mission is God's mission. Um, we are not going to be the only Jesus people ever meet, you know. Um, no, Bill Hybels, the church is not the hope of the world. You know, Jesus Christ is. And so, um, you know, I, I think so many of our, you know, so much of the time we assume that we have to sustain the status quo at all costs because we're up to such a good thing, not realizing that it's God who, um, who has given us the work and it's God who's going to bring the work to completion. And so I, I do, I do think, I feel like this is a little bit of a dodge because it doesn't feel as practical as what Karen and, and Michael said, but I do think a, a theological imagination around risk is really important. And I think that's, that's inspiring to people. We want to, we, we are a part of these communities because we believe God is a living, a, 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 a living being that is speaking, that is at work, you know, that God is a subject at work in the world and, and, um, we can find our identity and our meaning and, and our hope in the life of God. And so, you know, I think, so I think risk can help us reconnect with that a little bit as well. Well, this is great. I wish we had more time to dive into that, Scott, but uh, the whole theological aspect represents another fascinating uh, avenue. But uh, for the sake of time, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Michael Gerling, Karen Rohr, and Scott Hagley talking. We were talking about their book, Sustaining Grace, and some great conversation there. Really appreciate y'all's time and thoughts on this. So closing questions, you can take these as seriously or not as you like to. Um, so we'll kind of go quick hit here. Uh, Michael, if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What's that day look like? Yeah, I, I think if I was Pope for a day, I'd... I want to wave my Pope magic wand. I'm assuming the Pope has a magic wand. I'm not Catholic. I don't know. Sure. But uh, I'd want to rid the church of our idolatry of power. Mm. I uh, So often I, I see churches and sometimes church planters too wanting to do something new. And the assumption behind the new thing is we're going to start this new thing and our neighbors are going to come to it and be blessed by it. And the assumption behind that is, you know, we're deciding what's going to happen. They're going to come to it and receive from us. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, very, very rarely, but it's a blessing when I do hear it, uh, do I uh, hear churches wanting to instead go to their neighbors on their neighbor's turf and on their terms and get to know them in the places where they're already spending time and yeah. give up the power of being the ones who are calling the shots and owning whatever the, the thing is that is the gathering place. That'd be a good one. Scott? How about you? Hmm. I don't know how to answer this. I think I might just want to ride around on the Pope mobile like Michael Bluth and Arrested Development. I always tell people you can take these, like I said, as seriously or not as you'd like to. Karen, have you had any vast insights since I last asked you this question? No, I mean, I, what I'm thinking is he, the Pope is the person who can speak for Christendom more loudly and clearly than anyone else. And so I think what I would want to say is like, I'm sorry. I mean, this is very Presbyterian, right? But like, I want to, I want to confess. I want to start naming things and repenting and having that conversation. <laughs> Love it. 
Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Uh, Scott, you go. So I, I saw this question and I, I actually, where I went immediately is I, I think what I would want to do um, rather than bring someone back to life is to like, um, to live, to see what it would be like to live an ordinary life in one of these kind of transitional moments in history that we look back as transitional. Um, you know, so rather than like, meeting John Calvin, what would it be like to be in Geneva um, during the Reformation, right? Um, rather than, you know, meeting Augustine, what would it be like to be living in North Africa uh, in the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of where my, my, where my imagination went. But because um, I think it's harder for me to like name one figure I'd want to bring back. No, it's good. I like it. Michael, Michael how about you? Yeah, you know, the first person I thought of was the Anglican poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Okay. Uh, he, I just love his poetry. I, uh, I think he makes, he helps me see the world in more beautiful ways and to see beauty in places where I don't normally see it and to see, uh, to see Christ in places where I don't normally look for Christ. And so I think uh, I'd like to spend some time with him to help me see the world in more beautiful ways. Awesome. Karen, uh, anything you want to add here? I think last time I said Bayard Rustin, which I still, I'm still interested in that, like the strategic mind, the Quaker practice, the like, uh, you know, being a gay man in that context. Yeah. I'd love to hear what he has to say. Okay. Let's go this way. Karen, you start. And if you don't want to adapt or add to your answer, we can pass to Michael. What do you think history will remember since we're technically in a new current time place from when you last answered this question from this current time place? Oh, and Lauren, this is where our conversation got grim last time, and I'm going to do it again because I can't <laughs> help myself. Um, I don't see how history doesn't look back on this moment and say like, wow, for the sake of selfishness, they let millions and millions of people die of a pandemic and they just let global warming keep going because like, I can't be asked to be inconvenienced. <laughs> um, to me, the mark of right now is it is good. I mean, we talked about self-sufficiency, self-sustainability. Yeah. I think the problem is that we love to be isolated for the sake of our loneliness. We will sell almost anything. And I don't see how that's not the, one of the main marks of our day. Wow. That is uh, that's pretty dark, pretty bleak. Michael, Scott, how about you? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I feel like there's obvious answers to this. I mean, because of you know the pandemic that we're in still. But I also think about the fact that I don't think I ever learned about the Spanish flu until last year. And so I don't know that history is going to hang on to 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 that. Um, the other option I would throw out, though, is the our relationship to nationalism in the church. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think that that history will look kindly on the church in the United States, um, or at least the white church in the United States. Yeah, Scott. You know, I think they're going to say it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Um, you know, I, I think um, my sense is, my guess is that like, there's probably, it, it, there's probably all kinds of ways in which we're regularly missing the point. And, um, you know, the stuff that I'm really mad about right now is not going to register. And there's a bunch of other things that are more devastating are going to have more consequence in the future that I'm completely ignoring that um, are going to be, you know, what historians are going to want to say about this time. So 
Um, but I, I don't, I don't see how this is not a kind of transitional time, how this is not, um, there's going to be some, some moment where it's clear what was actually happening and what was being, what was dying and what is being rebirthed and things like that. Okay. Karen, uh, give me something more hopeful here. I don't remember what you said last time. So bring me back here, bring our listeners back. Oh, I don't remember either. Um, yeah, I think I'm thinking about my hope for this era. And I think it is the places I've seen mutual aid and uh, mutually shared risk bubbling up. People who are like, this is hard. Things are hard. I want to be in this with uh, with the people who are vulnerable. And we're going to be okay together. I think that's what's giving me hope. Scott? So Andrew Walls, a mission historian, has this way of framing mission history where, you know, Christianity has never been like a singular kind of expansive entity, but has this way of like flourishing and then dying in one region. Well, then it flourishes and dies in another region. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and so I, I think like, you know, there's a lot of people pointing to the demographic shift in Christianity. Um, and I think I think there's a lot to that. And um, in the sense that the center of gravity, the gravitational pull is to the south, it's to the east um, from where we are now. And, and so I think the future of Christianity in the United States, um, there's, there's going to need to be a lot of uh, repentance, uh, a lot of, of disentangling from nationalism, from racism and things like that. Um, and so I, I think there's going to I think there's a long winter ahead of us. Um, um, because, because this is sort of what has happened in other regions as well. I mean, this is just how the, how, you know, in the history of Christianity, this kind of thing happens. It doesn't mean it's dead in the United States. I just think it means that we have to undergo some pretty massive shifts and we should be ready to embrace this as maybe sometimes in some ways in the white Protestant church, God's judgment, um, and then also God's invitation to, um, a new way of being together. That's good. That's good. Michael, how about you? Yeah, I, I'm thinking about uh, someone who visited the church I had started uh, one time for one of our gatherings. And it was on um, a Sunday where, for whatever was happening in, in you know, the life of our world, um, it was probably near a holiday. A lot of our folks weren't there. And so it was, we were very small in numbers that day. I think maybe half a dozen people, like really, really small. And afterwards, this person said, you know, I grew up in a church where uh, where worship happened to me. I, I sat there and I watched it watched it happen. And in this in this place, this is the first time where I ever felt like if I didn't if I don't contribute something and th- then church is not going to happen. And I felt like I had to make worship happen with you all. Um, it was one of the best compliments I ever received. And but that's my vision and, and what I hope for the church is that we would move away from this kind of consumer mentality where we can just experience worship or experience church for us and instead be a community that's doing church together. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, uh, Michael, Karen, Scott, really appreciate y'all's time. I know it was quite of a challenge for us to finally nail down this time. So I appreciate, appreciate y'all's flexibility in making this happen. Um, Michael, then Karen, then Scott, why don't y'all kind of tell where we can find out more about y'all. Yeah, well, you can find out more about the work I'm doing and the, the broader 1001 New Worshipping Communities movement at the website 1001, spelled out, not the numbers, spelled out 1001.org. And then uh, if you want to get in touch with me and uh, talk more about anything, my email is michael.gerling at pcusa.org, or you can find me on social media 
Uh, my Instagram handle is Michael C. Gerling. Awesome. Karen. Excellent. Um, you can find me on Twitter, although I do, I do not do much on Twitter. The best way to reach me is email K R O H R E R at P T S dot edu. And our website has a ton of information about the center for adaptive and innovative ministry, the certificate program, which you can take from anywhere across the country. Um, and of course our emphasis in the master's program, which helps to support people getting their MDivs doing this kind of work. Uh, yeah, Lauren, thanks for having us on. This was, this was great. Um, uh, you can get a hold of me, um, through email on the, through my PTS email as well, shagley at pts.edu. Um, I do have a, another book, uh, Eat What Is Set Before You, uh, with Urban Loft Publishers. It's a study of a congregation in a very dynamic, uh, urban context. Um, and, uh, and I think like, you know, we have a, a great uh, missional leadership doctor ministry program here. Um, you know, I see a lot of what I do. I, I have poorly maintained um, social media accounts. A lot of, so a lot of what we do is try to cultivate learning communities um, apart from the, the social media sphere. So that we have got a, a missional leadership doctor ministry program, as Karen said, the graduate certificate and um, adaptive and innovative ministry um, are great places to connect. So. Awesome. I remember now, uh, remember this, Karen, when you were on having a debate about what the real PTS seminary is, because uh, I went to Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, PTS Tulsa, and there's another PTS I'm aware of. I don't know what state it was. Is that New Jersey? Where's Princeton? It's in New Jersey. Uh, so, well, you know, I think, unfortunately, my PTS is the least well-known uh, PTS, but, uh, you know, we're all trying to do some good work out there. So the book is Sustaining Grace, Innovative Ecosystems for New Faith Communities. I imagine it's wherever books are sold, uh, even on our friend's, uh, friend Jeff Bezos' site. Uh, but the publishers, what, whips and stock and Publishers always help me out, so if you if you can buy it from the publisher, uh, Jeff Bezos, he has he has plenty of money, right? Uh, as we're speaking, I think he safely landed from his uh, journey to space. But Michael, Karen, Scott, thanks so much for your time, and may God's peace be with you. Thanks Thank so you, much. Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace. <laughs>